When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. First of all, I have always been very critical of the government's carrot and stick approach to convincing companies to self-disclose. That was John May. John is one of the most iconoclastic criminal defense lawyers in white-collar defense that I know. He writes, talks, and lectures, and thinks about how criminal procedure intersects with FCPA enforcement actions, particularly around individuals. In this podcast, we take up some of John's thoughts about how changes in the corporate enforcement policy will make changes in how white-collar defense lawyers defend such cases. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Before we get to them, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and we are all in for a treat today because I have John May. This podcast is way overdue. Been dialoguing with John via email for, I don't know, two or three years. He has one of the most unique perspectives around. He is not a compliance officer, and that will become abundantly clear, but he writes, talks, and thinks about topics not only adjacent to this space, but in this space. So let's turn to some intersections between what you see as a white-collar criminal defense lawyer and compliance. Mm -hmm. Over the past, I don't know, 24 months, maybe 18 months, the DOJ has really pushed companies to Mm self-disclose. But I wanted to maybe change the focus to something you brought up a little bit earlier, John, which was a true whistleblower. So what synergies, if any, do you see in the new corporate enforcement policies announced by Kenneth Polite, changes to the corporate enforcement policy announced in January, and a whistleblower, perhaps as opposed to a corporation who might self-disclose, unless perhaps you see synergies in both? Okay, well, first of all, I have, as you know, always been very critical of the government's carrot and stick approach to um, uh, convincing companies to self-disclose. And I think, certainly in the past, very few companies would come forward with evidence of criminal conduct, uh, despite significant benefits that they would receive. And they did so believing, I think, that The chances of being caught were slim and that the uh, impact in terms of share price or, or maybe in terms of keeping their jobs was so great that it would be worth the risk to 
to take that they would the conduct would never be discovered. Now, I'm going to assume the model of the good citizen company corporation who discovered this conduct um, by employees and proceeded to remediate, 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 you know, change their procedures, discipline or fire the employees, maybe conduct an internal investigation, but not disclose to the government. Okay. Now, like I said, very few companies were self-disclosing. The government over time has tried to make it more and more in the, in the company's interest to self-disclose. And I think that that was a fool's errand because no matter how juicier the carrots the government offered, on balance, the company was, companies are a lot more afraid of their shareholders than they are prosecutors, particularly because the sticks that the government used to weld invariably resulted in a non-prosecution agreement um, so that even after companies were caught, if they did all of the good, the good, right things they were supposed to do, which, of course, if they hired a very high-priced law firm, they were going to do, you know, such as replacing you know, the, the wrong, get, uh, firing the wrongdoers, you know, changing all the locks on the doors, being completely transparent, turning over all of the evidence from their internal investigation, cooperating, cooperating, remediating, remediating. So worst case scenario was if they got caught, they'd essentially get slapped on the wrist. Now, you know, when I hear about all these billions of dollars of fines that, you know, they pay. Usually, usually it's in the high hundreds of millions, but occasionally a couple of billions. Nobody bothers to point out what a fraction of the earnings in that particular year this this fine was, and particularly over the course of many years. I mean, it's it's all cost of doing business, but. There has been a change over time, and I think this is what's going to make a difference. One change is that the government has increasingly depended upon whistleblowers to uncover criminal activity, made it more lucrative for whistleblowers to bring criminal activity to the attention of the government, Um broadened the types of crimes that whistleblowers could bring to the attention of the government and changed an attitude towards whistleblowers. Because when I was practicing law, well, when I was practicing law a long time ago, there was a time when I represented whistleblowers and the government's, the, the, the relationship which, between whistleblowers was like a love-hate relationship. You know, they sort of had the attitude about somebody who was snitching on the company um, as, okay, we benefit from it, but we don't necessarily like who they are. And that was a fundamental misunderstanding of, the, of, of, of who a whistleblower really is. You know, often, often somebody who loves their company um, and who even tried to go to 
the executives in their company to try to get them to do the right thing and ended up being fired or transferred across the country. So, but today, increasingly, the likelihood is that the company is going to get pinched. And while I still think that um, companies are going to be reluctant to go to come come forward, um, I think there will be there's a real incentive now uh, towards self disclosure and quick self disclosure. You know, in the past, companies could just wait. You know, a couple of years while the, the outside counsel did a internal investigation. But now it's very clear under the latest guidelines that the government wants to know that a crime was committed as soon as the company knows and can monitor the work of the, the uh, outside counsel. And unless you, you, unless you get that notice in first, you know, if, if, if whistleblower gets to the government first, you may not get all of the credit you would otherwise get. So it remains to be seen whether these, whether there's going to be a real synergistic result from the latest guidelines and from the expansion of whistleblowers. Uh, but it may it may well may well result in in more companies coming forward. I I don't know at this point. Let me pick up on a couple of points you hit, John. The need for speed mm-hmm. and the government monitoring, directing, overseeing, or perhaps <laughs> even guiding right external counsel's internal investigation of a company. Right. Let me start with first the need for speed. And you talked about it in terms of self-disclosure. But Kenneth Polite said, even Lisa Monaco, Deputy Attorney General Monaco said, if you've got a hot doc, you pick up the phone and call us. Mm -hmm. Leaving attorney-client privilege issues aside, I've always thought you call your client, you have some reasoned consideration. What does this hot document mean? And you think through the implications of this, you're going to turn it over, but you want to reflect on and consider with your client first. I didn't get the impression that either Lisa Monaco or Kenneth Bleat wanted that to slow down turning over documents or evidence. And then it's, it's sort of the last part of this need for speed is we really don't know what it looks like, or we can't tell you what it looks like, but we'll tell you if, if and when we see it. So channeling their inner Potter Stewart. Those sort of three things at least give me pause. How did they give you pause as a white-collar defense attorney? Well, as a white-collar defense attorney, I'm representing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of, 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 of big law outside counsel representing the company. I'm representing the people who are going to be the target of the investigation. So, but um, in terms of what I think, think a company should should prudently the way they should prudently handle things. What I'm saying as far as as far as rushing to the government is, if you have credible evidence that a crime was committed, then you meet with your outside counsel, discuss it, 
and make and and have your outside counsel disclose to the government that you believe this happened don't know the details don't know all the people involved and you are engaged in internal investigation and that as the internal investigation proceeds anything significant will be disclosed to the government consistent with privilege if in the course of this a hot document is found you don't turn it over immediately you know you go through the process of meeting with a client meeting with outside counsel okay and understanding the significance of this document before turning it over to the government now that can happen very quickly and the sooner it can happen the better off are in communication with the government and hopefully they trust you um, in your conduct of the internal investigation if you take you know if you take three four days or a week to disclose a particular document while you're analyzing it and understanding its significance, you know, I don't think you have to just as soon as you find this, put a phone call into them. How about the government oversight of investigations? Mm-hmm. Right. How well, long wonder, did, now, of course, the Department of Justice will say, we don't oversee. We might ask questions, but that's as far as we go. Yeah. But, whether you agree with that or not, I've often wondered about criminal procedural protections that are available in a criminal investigation where the FBI or U.S. prosecutors are involved. Should those extend out to external investigations after a self-disclosure by a company is made where companies now are actively seeking evidence to turn over to the government to in- put light on the the players or alleged players in a bribery scheme? Does, do you have those conversations? Are they valid? Where, where should we take these issues? Well, I wrote a law review article about 15 years ago addressing a situation that had arisen recently back then where um, corporate lawyers, I don't know if they're in-house or out-house, but corporate lawyers, had interviewed some individuals in the company and just turned it over, turned the material over to the government. And they hadn't, they hadn't received any kind of like Miranda warnings, but it was really clear that the prosecutors had directed every aspect of the interview as far as what questions needed to be answered, what follow-ups, all kinds of stuff. And I discussed that in all the ways that in the future companies could become essentially the investigative arm of um, prosecutors. And in a recent video that I posted, I said to companies that they were under an obligation to let their employees know that there is an internal investigation going on, that 
they may be questioned in the internal investigation and that they that the company doesn't represent them i mean this is this is this is all you know consistent with upjohn warnings but it goes one step further and that it is the company's recommendation that they obtain counsel before they are interviewed by the company or the company's outside counsel. And I think that's necessary because it's an illusion that companies have any kind of any kind of ability to resist the government when the government says we want to know everything that you uncover so long as it doesn't involve privilege i think companies i think companies the relationship with companies today and the government when it comes to internal investigations is so close that really the company and this whole thing with internal investigations. I mean, this 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 is the the government being very lazy, outsourcing outsourcing uh, their in investigations to people who, for the most part, are former assistant U.S. attorneys working in these companies who know exactly what to do in order to make a case, so that the internal investigation essentially hands over to the government on a silver platter everything they need to do to get a plea out of the corporation and to go after individuals. And in that situation, since they are acting as an arm or an agent of the government, it's incumbent upon them to tell their employees, look, you know, maybe this, it's, this is the time now to look for another job. Because if you're going to if you're going to meet with our lawyers and you don't talk, you're going to be fired. Okay. So think of your options now and get a lawyer. John, I want to end this sort of section by asking the following, certainly in the anti-money laundering and export control sanctions, the department of treasury and the DOJ has made it explicitly clear that they view businesses, companies, as a part of the fight against those scourges. Mm-hmm. And they want businesses, if they uncover money laundering violations or export control violations, to come forward. And they will appropriately um, give rewards or uh, for companies who come forward. We are now starting to hear, at least I'm starting to hear, that same sort of language from Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, Kenneth Polite. And so what I really wanted to ask you, are we moving towards a different model? You've talked about the outsourcing of DOJ investigations, which has been going on for at least 15 years that I've been in this field, maybe longer. But now we see the DOJ say, you're part of the fight. Uh, Anti-corruption has been elevated to a national security issue by the Biden administration. We view this as a national security issue. That changes our calculus. Mm-hmm. Does any of that give you pause for not simply a criminal defense from a criminal defense perspective, but perhaps some of the 
criminal procedural protections that have been created for persons under investigation or defendants? Well, that raises, that raises a whole bunch of issues um, that I don't know how we're going to shake out over time. Certainly, to the extent that um, the Supreme Court in Upjohn recognized that individuals were not in a position to understand um, that the company is not looking out for their interests and that they need to look out for their interests themselves has changed over time as, you know, we get closer to a a nation of informers where, um, you know, all companies are being put under an obligation to scrutinize all their activities to determine if there's something criminal going on. And, you know, know your customer becomes, you know, know everybody and report on everybody. And that certainly moves the dial between the relationship on the one hand in terms of the power of the government versus the versus the power of individuals. And so the question is going to come, yes, there is a certain amount of criminal activity, both by corporations and by multinational criminal organizations. But how far in a society are we willing to go in order to combat um, combat that criminal activity? You know, what amount of criminal activity are we willing, you know, to live with? in order to be able to protect our civil liberties. Um, It's a moving target because at one time, you know, we had the war on drugs and we made certain decisions about the war on drugs based on erroneous information and, and put a generation of black males in prison and less a generation of children of being raised by single parent in single parent families with horrible impacts on society in general. Um, so policies that that have that seem very necessary at the time can have terrible consequences, you know, between what's going on with face recognition, um, there's a movement to make lawyers and accountants and other professionals part of combating different kinds of criminal activity. Um, I mean, I mean, our society is, you know, bounces, bounces back and forth. Um, on the other hand, there's some movement to try to give greater protection of uh, bank accounts from uh, simple grand jury subpoenas and orders by the prosecutors not to reveal. So we're in a struggle to try to figure out um, 
what is necessary to combat crime, and at the same time, what is necessary to protect our civil liberties. Um, and it's it's not like one uniform battle where we where we see all the pieces of it in, in in one place. It's like skirmishes all over the place, and there's just like no unified consensus as as t- to where that balance should be. So we don't know where it's all going to end up. Well, John, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, on your practice, or your book, who says you can't, where would be the best places for them to go? Well, I got to tell you, the easiest thing to do, because there are already so many different ways, you know, websites and and, uh, and email addresses and stuff, I'll just give you my phone number. If somebody wants to talk to me about anything, they can just call me on the phone. The phone number is area code 954-439-6500. And I don't return calls if somebody doesn't leave a message, but I will return a call if you leave me a message. Where can they buy your book? Well, uh, Who says you can't? Strategies and tactics for becoming a more creative criminal defense lawyer is available from the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Just put in NACDL.org and the organization will come up and you'll be able to go into the you'll be able to go into the NACDL store and and find publications and you just order it from the NACDL. Well, John, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. This is way overdue. Congrats on the book. That was overdue. and glad you put it out there and just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for encouraging me to write. I'm going to write some more books. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you'd like to be a guest on the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm always looking for folks. Or if you'd like to be on one of my other podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, give me a shout at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. The FCPA Compliance Report, of course, is the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report, and it's a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.